If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Be a part of a new coalition with Jake Feinberg. The second half of your show starts right now. Welcome, everybody, to the Jake Feinberg Show. And uh, as I continue my my path towards uh, interviewing uh, my jazz heroes and uh, actually people that that are uh, intellectual titans as well and and uh, leaders in our in our society. Uh, my guest today is uh, saxophonist Gary Bartz. Gary grew up in Baltimore, one of the great uh, old-time jazz cities, and spent a great deal of time in his dad's jazz lounge soaking up all the legends that came through. He's played with Art Blakey, Miles Davis, and Max Roach. To this day, he continues to collaborate spiritually and musically with McCoy Tyner. He put out a slew of albums on the Milestone label and later its sister label, the uh, Prestige. Um, the albums were all part spirit, part soul, and part body politic. And today he remains incredibly active, teaching, uh, teaching music at Oberlin College in Ohio and playing all over the world. Gary Bartz, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Hello. Yes, Gary, how are you? Okay. Hey, we're we're uh, we're we're breaking in a new board op here, so I, I know you can appreciate that. Back from your days in Baltimore, I appreciate it. <laughs> how okay? How, how are you, my friend? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm doing fine. I wanted to. Uh, did you hear my introduction to you? I did. Okay, yeah, good. I, 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 I'm, I, you know, I just it's uh it's an honor to have you on the program, my friend. I wanted to I wanted to uh, to start by having you talk about um, what you're doing right now, as far as teaching is concerned, and. Um, you know, is it, how much of the time do you spend, uh, how do you, I guess my question is this, how do you develop or how do you get younger students to develop their own sound? Well, I, I try to, to, um, uh, show them the way my generation and almost every generation up until, the last maybe 20 years have learned music. Um, but, but before I even go there, but, you know, because you use that word jazz, um, and jazz is a word that's very confining, and that's why most musicians do not uh, use labels for their music because it has no other label other than its music. Uh, you know, I mean, water is water, air is air. Yes. You can segment it and segregate it if you want to, but it still ends up being air. Same thing with music. It always ends up being music. I don't care. Just like Duke Ellington said, it's two types if you want to divide it, good and bad, But and that's subjective, but... Um, uh, so. No, I, I, you know, you, we, uh, for my audience's sake, when Gary and I talked previously, he made it very clear to me he plays music, not jazz. So, uh, you know, if I use any type of segregated language, please feel free to step in at, at all costs. So, continue. Well, what it, what it does, it, what it tells is, it reveals me something about the person that uses that word. You know, either they're uneducated to what music is. Or they are just brainwashed, and they just call, or or they understand it, but they call it that anyway. You know, it couldn't be a lot of reasons, you know. But I, I just saw an interview on on uh, YouTube, um, Brian Gumble interview with Miles, and the same thing. You know, I mean, I worked with all, you know, Max. Max would literally go to blows for people accusing him <laughs> of 
playing jazz because that's demeaning, you know? I mean, we play music. What would you, Stravinsky, you know? Like I say, did he play class? You know, Ravel, what did they play? They, you don't name it. It's just music. But, but anyway, that's a whole nother uh, story. You know, I, 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 uh, I feel like uh, you don't. I, I totally understand the sort of. Uh, you don't want it to be an exclusive. Uh, you don't want. Well, to I don't want to be put in a box. Exactly. Because jazz is a box, and it's confining. I'm, and so that whenever I would do things that the, the so-called jazz purists didn't like. You know, I was selling out, or I was doing this, or I was doing... I was playing music all the time. Whatever I do, I'm going to play music, because that's what I am. I'm a musician. Same problem we had with Miles. People said, he's selling out, he's doing this. But look, I trusted Miles' musicality and his musical intellect that I knew whatever it was he was doing had validity. So I didn't just, you know, scoff at it. You know, I, I checked it out. And and I I saw what he was doing, you know, um, he was being an artist, <laughs> like he was, and a very intelligent artist, you know. And most artists are usually ahead of of the public, you know. But um, that's because that's what we study. We're studying it, you know, the, where the audience just hears the end result. They don't hear all of the years to get to a certain song or to get to play a certain way. They don't see all those years, uh, you know, hours and hours traveling. You know, they don't see all of that. Do you, I they wanted to ask you... Result, uh, which is good. But then to just say, oh, that's jazz. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd much rather just say it's music. <laughs> you know, because that's what it is. Well, but, okay, I wanted to ask... Know, I have this uh, discussion all the time because uh, most people don't understand it. I really don't see it. I don't see it. No, and 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 that's just coming from somebody. I mean, it's a. It, I think it has something to do with sort of the the media construct that we um, have developed. And you know, you go on, for instance, if I'm looking for uh, Gary Bart's, you know, a couple of your albums from the late '60s. Mm -hmm. Let's just say I'm looking for Home or or Libra, and mm -hmm. I go on to uh, you know a, a website that sells records. It's mm -hmm. going to say, you know, just, I mean, they're going to rave about the album, but they're going to, the word jazz is going to be used five or six times in that description. Right. So through the, through the, through the medium that I'm, uh, that I'm looking for this stuff, you know, it goes into your head and you start to learn this, you know, I mean, it's just, that's, you become indoctrinated in it. Right. Right. It does. And, and it, I mean, I understand why it happened. It happened initially because if you go into a record store and there were different types, you know, you it made it easier to find certain things. Exactly. But in in our in this music, you know, the more modern music, um, they weren't in the stores mostly anyway. <laughs> so so it didn't matter, you know. So you know that could be construed as something else. You uh, but, um, we won't go there. No, no, you know, I, but this <laughs> and this is this is makes for compelling radio. I I did I. I did want to say because I I, um, I I captured something from you, uh, some audio um, that I was I was watching that I was fascinated about, and you were sort of uh, pontificating, or you just were analyzing sort of the uh, new the students that you um, that you see in your classes now, and you and and I I thought it was just great. You talked about really the generation or even the the players just a little bit before your time as well. They didn't have uh, music schools. 
to go right. to. They didn't. They couldn't go and learn a certain uh, style, and mm-hmm. so they had to develop their own style. And like you said, it took hours, and it took a lot of traveling, and it just took just a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. And um, but hence you had yourself, and you had. Uh, Woody Shaw, and you had Miles, and you had, you know, all sorts of different players, just to name a couple, that right. that developed their own sound. But now you say because there's all this stuff to comp, it makes people technically they can read music very well, they can they're very proficient. But yet they're you say they sound like certain people. Could you talk about that for a minute? Well, I mean, you know, they when you're being taught by the same teacher. You seem to, you know, all of the students have a certain, you know, you can tell. You know, I mean, like, just just for instance, like, you can tell the saxophonists that love Charlie Parker. And, and they didn't even, they might not even had one-on-one with, with Charlie Parker. But just listening to him, he taught them. And so then they end up sounding like him. Well, when you take that into the schools and you have a... Um, a saxophone teacher teaching uh, students, you can fall prey to having everyone have a similar, you know, be similar. You have to watch it because everyone's individual, and and you have to approach it like that. You know, you can't approach it like most educational curriculums. They have a curriculum, and this is the way you teach it, you know. So, um, fortunately... You know, a lot of schools that do teach this music, they are not that strict about the curriculum. They allow the teachers more leeway. Uh, but a lot of schools, you, you know, I can tell when guys come from certain schools. I won't mention any names. <laughs> <It's okay. laughs> but I can tell because they have this a similar, which is not the bad. I'm not saying it's bad. And none of this is bad. As long as you're learning music, that's a good thing. What happens is that, okay, you learn it, now you have to find your sound. You know, what we did, we were searching, we were doing all of that at the same time. We were looking for a sound while we were learning music, rather than learning music and then finding a sound. You did, though, um, and we are jumping around here, and we're joined by Gary Bartz. This has been an electrifying interview already, uh, and I appreciate you dealing with us through those early technical problems. (laughs) <laughs> but you know you you grew up um you grew up in your dad's nightclub so you had all this hands-on experience but then well you... no no I didn't grow up in there he he didn't I was already living in New York when he bought the club Oh okay Yeah I I had been in at Juilliard uh for um, I think 2 years I had been there cuz I I started in Juilliard in 58 59 and he bought the club in 60 so i was still living in new york he had the nightclub from 1960 to 1965 yeah it talks um, about the talk- north end lounge in baltimore maryland located on north and gay street in east baltimore <laughs> but um did you did you um like can you describe the there was essentially the curriculum was being made on the fly when you were at juilliard is that fair to say it was really one of the first Pilot oh programs. no! It, it was a, a, a European classical curriculum. Really? They, 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 I was not even a sax major. I was a composition major because they. Um, I studied with Joe Allard, 
the Radio City Music, you know, orchestra, the, the first saxophonist. He taught great, great saxophonist, great musician. But he taught clarinet. W- clarinet was an instrument I, that you could take. You couldn't take saxophone. Why not? Well, because they didn't recognize it as an orchestral instrument. Wow. So it was just too avant-garde for for the uh, for the. Well, there's not there was not a lot of material written because the saxophone is a new newer instrument. You know, it's only a little over a hundred years old. Uh, all the other instruments have hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, of music and technical uh, literature. You know, but the saxophone is not. It's fairly new. So um, they didn't feel a lot of school. A lot of schools were like that. Most of them were like. I I had a choice to go to Manhattan, which I should have, but Juilliard had the bigger name. Exactly. So I went there. I mean, not that I I learned things there, but I know Max Roach. He went to Manhattan. Donald Byrd went to Manhattan. A lot of guys went to Manhattan. And it's funny now. Manhattan is where Juilliard used to be. Where I, when I went to Juilliard, is now. Manhattan has taken over that building, and uh, Juilliard moved down to Lincoln Center. So take us t- take take us through for the audience's sake. Um, the uh, saxophone was uh, was didn't have like the the curriculum or the the years per, per se. It didn't have the longevity as, as some of the other uh, instruments did. Um, mm-hmm. Who were some of uh, maybe your professors or at least? People in in the music community, people like Max Roach, that kind of uh, got you, that you gravitated to the saxophone and started playing music with it. Well, I, I heard I heard these records at my grandmother's house where my uncle lived, my father's youngest brother, uh, Leon, and he loved this music, and he would go to New York and bring back the latest records and stories of where he went to Birdland and saw Dizzy Gillespie telling stories, and I'd li- listen to these music. I started listening to these records when I was about six years old, and I stumbled across a Charlie Parker record. And as a six-year-old, not knowing anything about music or whatever, I made a decision that I, I wanted to do this. Whatever that was, that this person, I didn't know it could have been a man, could have been anyone, I, I wanted to do whatever he was doing, he or she was doing. And so I started listening, started begging for I found out it, it was a saxophone and um, started asking my parents for a saxophone every year around Christmas time or whenever they would ask, what would you like? <laughs> <laughs> it was always a saxophone. So finally, when I was 11, they finally purchased me or rented me one, actually. And um, now I got to work. But see, I had been listening and studying in my head for five years which is what I say, well, this is what musicians do. You you know, you don't need your instrument to practice. You can learn music and work on music without your instrument. So, um, you know, when I hear guys say, well, I just don't have the time, or, you know, I don't take that, you know, I, I'm, I don't feel sorry for you. <laughs> exactly. I would. You'd be a great teacher for me, constantly lighting a fire under me to just, because I know what you're talking about. It's about... It's 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 a level of cognition that you can still learn. You yeah. don't need to have a physical instrument in your hand in order to get rhythm or tempo or any or, or dynamic or anything like that. You know? or, or see the scales. What I what I you know visualize. I visualize what I'm doing. You know, so I can visualize it 
if I'm sitting on the subway or if I have the instrument in my hand. Either way, I visualize what it is, so I'll transpose it into another key, you know, because I've already know. once you know the melody, like I teach, nothing is more important than the melody. And that seems to be what's missing nowadays. I don't, I don't hear much melodies. Um, you can, you can change the harmony on songs. You can reharmonize a melody, but you can't change the melody. If you change the melody, it's a new song, and then it has different uh, uh, harmonies that go with it. Why do you think that's the case? Well, because the melody is. The melody came first. The mel- melodies came before harmony. Harmony is new. It's more recent than melodies. You know, we, we didn't have pianos. We didn't have, you know, the ancient musicians. They didn't have all those things, even guitars. and th- You know, in- initially they was just the voice, or you know. So they were melodies. They came from melodies, and gradually people started hearing chords and things behind them but that's fair that's newer right so melody comes first the same way ears come first you can't know you want to be a musician or you you like music unless you hear it so that's first you understand what i'm saying well i it's from that same audio clip where you talk about uh this uh these these students that you see not only is it um more of a uh, tech, more comping uh, musically, but there's less listening, and uh, they don't know how to. Well, their ears are locked. Their ears are. Can you just can you describe that the best way you can? Yeah, I, I'll tell you. I'll show you how you can how a musician can tell that their ears that they have good ears, but their ears are locked because when I'm with a student and they're playing something and they play a wrong note, immediately they know it. <laughs> Because their ear is saying, that's a wrong note. Mm -hmm. Now they need to find out why that's a wrong note. Because in actuality, there are no wrong notes. But they don't understand. They don't have enough knowledge yet to know how to use that note. So it it ends up being a wrong note. But it's nothing that they saw on the page. Because now they're just playing out of their head. So when they, they hit wrong notes and they know it, that's their ear. It, nothing is more powerful than ear. Nothing. <laughs> yeah, when I think of locked, I think of like uh, you know, uh, unmovable. So, but, but they, but they recognize that they are playing the wrong note, though. It's not that they're not cognizant, right? That it's so, but it's just that they they don't trust it. They don't trust, and I, you know, on a social when we we're gonna. Uh, we're here with Gary Bartz and Gary. In a couple minutes, we're going to be going to a, a, a just a little bit of a hard break for my commercials. But when we come back, um, I do want to talk to you about uh, so sociological components of uh, of jazz when you were um, in your formative years, and sort of what I've what I have um, interpreted as a, a young adult as a, a society now that mm-hmm. is uh, not comfortable. Uh, with themselves, insecure with who they are, and how this um, sort of uh, cross-referencing that to when um, you were, uh, you know, you were uh, at Juilliard and in, in your younger twenties, and how really it seemed to me that people were a lot less uptight about how they looked, how they felt, 
how they dealt with other people. Um, and I look forward to talking about a whole lot of things uh, when we come back from the, uh, from the break, okay? Okay. All right, Gary. Legendary musician and teacher, uh, Gary Bartz. Gary, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Jake. I, you know, Gary, I wanted to ask you, um, it's, we are in such a strange moment in our society now where um, it almost to me seems as if we're paralyzed um, and fearful of what we actually have become um, as a people. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I am not one to say that there wasn't a lot of strife, um, you know, 40 or 50 years ago, but I do see it in music. I see it clearly in our political structure. Um, in the ability to actually compromise and get things done, um, I see uh, uh, our society is as uh, is, is more insecure now than it than it ever has been, and I kind of wanted to get your your thoughts on that. <laughs> oh man! And go right ahead. Be, be, feel free to, to say uh, you know whatever you want because I don't know if you had a chance to. Uh, I had Richard Davis on a couple weeks ago, and he was. I haven't. No, I've been traveling a lot. I'm, I plan on listening. To him. I'm, you know, I'm. Well, you you just you, you, you let it, you let it go, my friend. Go ahead and and give your thoughts. Yeah, um, I think as humans, we have, and this is this is just across this planet. We have yet to become human beings. We're still human animals, and I don't know why. I don't know whether there's a defect. I don't know whether it was. It bred into us, put into us, whether we developed it, but we're animals. We go crazy, we kill, we do things that animals do. We have a human being, in my estimation, would do none of these things. Human beings would not do that. So that that's that's it in a nutshell for me. That takes care of everything because we we're, we're animals. <laughs> Yeah. Um, let me, you know, in, in the sense that, um, we, uh, there's, there's a lot of strife and there's, and there's poverty and there's rape and there's mm-hmm. all, all sorts of, uh, deprivation, uh, you know, everywhere. Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering, was there a period of time that you, uh, maybe when you were a little bit more, uh, naive or, 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 or hopeful that, that you, uh, believe that we were turning a quarter, corner in an evolutionary sense, or and, or have we gone backwards? It seems as if we're going backwards. It seems as if, you know, because there's always been wars where somewhere, somebody's always killing somebody or uh, trying to, you know, uh, subjugate them under their power. or You know, it's just as far as history, you know, you just go on and on. I mean, I look at things like, see, I grew up in a segregated city. Okay, so I, I I saw segregation in its filthiest, you know. Like my mom, my mother, if she took me, she was very light. She could have passed for white, but um, so if she took me to the stores, department stores, she couldn't try on clothes. If she went by herself, she could. <laughs> and and I'm not understanding this as a kid. You don't understand it. These things have long-lasting effects on you. Absolutely. You know, we had the black movie, we had the white movies. We had the black swimming pools, we had the white swimming pools. We had the black schools. That We had two high schools in Baltimore. It, it used to be the sixth largest city in the United States um, back in around the 30s or 40s because it's a seaport. But 
it was segregated. It, it, it was on the south side in, in the Civil War. It was, it's right on the Mason-Dixon line, so it could have gone either way. They, they, Maryland was used as a free state. They supposedly didn't have slaves, although they did, especially on the eastern shore where Frederick Douglass came from. That's where he was born. Um, the great, uh, the great writer, and he actually had the newspaper called the North Star uh, up in Rochester, New York, uh, during the Civil War times. Yeah, yeah, R- brilliant man. Yeah, really, really great. Yeah. Just to be clear, you just to go back to the scenario with your mother, mm. you were you were darker than her, so then therefore because you were black, she couldn't try on clothes in the department store. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. So. How did and the schools were segregated? So you had you took different buses to school. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, we, there was a we had a high school on the east side and one on the on the on the west side. And so, but but there were positives. There's always positives and negatives to everything. Um, the community was much closer because everybody knew each other because they went to the same schools. Their moms and dads and everybody, because you you could only go to these schools. So consequently, everybody knew each other, and the community was better, which also happened in the music industry. It, it used to be when we used to travel, we could only stay at certain hotels in, in a lot of places. And so there were certain hotels where the artists stayed, the musicians, the actors, the dancers, the filmmakers, the whatever. But they were all, you know, the black community because we couldn't stay anywhere. We couldn't stay downtown at the Hyatts and all those places. We had to stay at the Booker T. Washingtons. It was probably, <laughs> you know, it was probably a better time. Like it was probably that. a better time, though. You know, in some ways. In some ways, it was. You know, uh, but it's good to have a choice. You need to have choice, and you can't be segregated. I mean, I think the I think what I want to talk to you about is to go back to your childhood, and and if you can. The the long lasting effects of of this sort of uh, 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 racism, uh, the, the 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 things that you that you internalized as a young boy, that maybe you still um, haven't come to terms with, like like no, the, like the department to store kind of thing. I've definitely come to terms with. It. I, I think this country needs to come to terms with. Well, that's it. what I mean. I mean, what I'm trying to say is, it was it was this country's original sin, which was slavery. Yeah. And it seems to me that it's one of these things, if I can use the analogy, where we've dug our, white America, uh, white Americans, uh, you know, continually through the years have we've already dug ourselves a huge hole. We know slavery was a black eye. We feel totally guilty about it. We have we know that it was completely wrong and not human. Be- we weren't being human beings at all. Yeah. And yet it's one of those situations where you you the hole is so deep, Gary, that you just keep digging it deeper and deeper. Uh, you, well, you can't you know, get, there's I no mean, way to get out of it. like, I think America needs a 12-step program. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, S.A. <laughs> let's, let's list those off, you know. What, what, I mean, what's the, where do we start? R.A., Racism Anonymous. Race, R.A., 12-step program by Gary Bartz. <laughs> I love it. No, I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it, but it just speaks to, I mean, you know, this is not this is. I'll tell you this this day in this day and age, the kind of fights that we're having at, at the political level and at the grassroots level, mm-hmm. these are not things that I want to be um, trying to um, uh, decipher or explain to my daughter when she gets to an age where she can understand this stuff. This yeah. is this is embarrassing to me. And yeah. just as I would have, I know that if I had been around 
you know, during if I had, if I had been your age growing up, um, mm-hmm. I would have been it would have it would have made me sick to my stomach to uh, to to see the treatment the the, the segregation. Oh yeah, and 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 uh, you know I have um, part of the show. I mean, because we could spend the whole time talking about Harlem Bush music or follow the Medicine Man, and mm-hmm. I, you know, but but at the same time, I I kind of feel that that, that I'm I want to offer a platform to people like yourself to be able to talk about uh, race in America and and. Uh, and and where where we need to go and and how we need to evolve because I don't think we're we're not going to see it in our lifetimes but how can we at least start that process to keep to move forward and become more like human beings? Oh man, <laughs> <laughs> um, I I I always and I think we have to put the faith in the young people. We just have to teach our young people, and I think more and more young people do see the folly of racism. But as they get older, I mean, if you can use, it's almost like drugs. When you, when you, if you're a drug addict and you're trying to, to stop using drugs and you don't feel well and you have a meeting to go to or you have to do something and you know that all you have to do is get high, and you'll feel better. You you know, a lot of times that you know people fall off the wagon like that. You know, um, and they skip the meeting. It's get well, yeah, they skip the meeting right. and get high and miss. It's kind of like that with with race. As as you're young, you know that it's wrong, mm-hmm. but when advantages come that uh, you know only your race can can deal with or or where you might have an advantage over somebody else you might go that way and step on somebody's toes or do you know i mean as you get older you know things change and you your your feelings change and all kinds of things change you know we just don't first of all let me say this and i hope i don't step and i'm sure i will step on toes but i think religion and this goes across the board. I'm not talking about any one specific religion. I think religion has done more harm than almost anything else. And it's, cond- it's uh, you know, it's condoned slavery, it's condoned racism, it's condoned everything, killing, it's, and it's been over 2,000 years, and it's not working. Yeah, and it's also actually it's condoned those things, and it's also um, made it very clear what is not acceptable as well. And, and it's, right, but you don't need a religion to do that. I you can do good agree. without a religion. Why should I need a religion? This is what I mean: human beings. A human being just naturally does good things. They don't need a religion. What I mean, right? But there, there are, and I, and I am totally on the same page as you. I'm just from a from a psychological point of view, I would say that, that there are a lot of people that um, grow up uh, not having a, a real inner core, a value system, and they latch onto something and they say, "Oh, this this feels right, so I'm going to just be a follower. I'll mm-hmm. be a follower of the herd, as opposed to somebody who's going to follow their own true, uh, like you said, their own human feelings." And yeah. they become locked into something that is extremely rigid and extremely fundamentalist, and it doesn't lead to anything progressive or forward or evolutionary. Really, it takes you backward. 
I mean, I would just, I, I use common sense. I try to use common sense. And for me, if it takes me 2,000 years to learn that something doesn't work, then the problem is mine. That's a whole lot of wasted time. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it was supposed to be a good thing. And, and not that it isn't in a lot of respects. It is a good thing. Like I say, everything has pros and cons. But we need another system to teach people how to be human beings. That's what religion, I thought, was supposed to be doing. But it's not working. So we need something else, you know? The, I, mean, I don't know. The, 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 are, are, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I think but, the... But humans, Go ahead. they disappoint me. Human beings disappoint me. I want to go back to um, the... the I say late... human animals, rather. Human beings don't disappoint me. Human animals disappoint me. And, and I just want to be clear. We're, we're not... There are some some human animals that have evolved more than others. I think is that we're not all... There are beings out there? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure there are. But, mo- but most of the time, they get killed. Right, right, right. They're, they're the one... They're... <laughs> <laughs> they get killed by the savages. <laughs> you know, I wanted to go back to this, and I, I don't want to mispronounce this, the N2 troop? N2, yeah. N2 troop, because uh, I looked up the definition. It means unity in all things, time and space, living and dead, seen and unseen. Mm-hmm. And I just want to talk to you about that troop, or those the gentlemen and, and women that were involved um, in the musical collaboration Mm-hmm. During that time, um, for instance, with uh, Harlem Bush music, uh, and, could you explain and Taifa, uh, Taifa, Taifa. Yeah, could you explain to my audience what the, these titles mean? Well, Taifa how, is my oldest daughter, and it just it, it just in general, Har, like Harlem Bush music, for instance. What is what did that title mean to you, and, and how did they reflect where you were in your life at that time? Well, I kind of grew up in Harlem, you know, in New York. I spent most of my probably 20, 25 years living in Harlem. And I, I wanted a band. Actually, this, this particular band, we were addressing the black community. That was a band for, you know, and, and you know, I, I hope everybody loved the music. I wanted everybody to love it, but it was really messages to the black community. Um and I, I wanted a band that we could perform anywhere out in the in the jungle, in the bush, you know, so that we didn't have a piano, you know, we didn't have any instruments that you couldn't take with you. So that was and and troop, the troop was actually everybody, anybody that enjoyed the music and came to see us, because we would encourage people to bring the instruments and bring you know percussion instruments and join in. You know, and sing along with us, and you know, it was like that. What was the message to the black community? We are all one. Come together, and let's all just um, and let's all play and and be, and be together and, and be versatile. No, there were many messages. There were there were many messages. Like there was the um, there was the, what did we do? We did the Viet Cong. That was a protest against the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. You know, when a lot of our young um, black young men were being sent over to die somewhere when we still had problems here. You know, if, if you're going to go that way. You know, it's funny, you know, like even religion, they teach you thou shalt not kill when you're young. And then when you become 18, 
teach you how to kill. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, everything is a paradox. It's no wonder we're a, a, a planet full of nuts. Because racism is, is a form of insanity. That in itself is a form of insanity. When you can look at a skin and make up a whole story about a person, that's insane. I can't do that about anybody. Or look, or look at a name, uh, yeah. Or and just and See just sort words, of salivate about the, you know, just sort of pontificate about the, uh, you know, the the just sort of absolutely ridiculous tribal uh, stuff, the analogies that are being made to. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. to, to Obama, for instance, uh, and, and things like that. I mean, I, being a 33-year-old guy, I'm, I I love Barack Obama. I'm a big fan of his. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that it's fair. And people often say, well, you can disagree on policy, but we should avoid these more tribal issues like his name and his birth certificate. But over and over again, I've been saying it on my show, even before I started to interview guys like yourself, is this is all a smokescreen. This is just This is just a... a, a a distraction because there's really a a large segment of 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 older America, white older America, who does not. And this is this is my opinion, but they don't mm-hmm. want to accept. They they look at the younger generation. They see multi ethnic. Uh, they see a huge amount of immigration. They see all this multi ethnicity. They mm-hmm. don't they don't recognize it as what the America they grew up in, and they are resentful of that, and they're angry at that, and therefore they're coming up with these, like you said, this this insane sort of methodology where we have to tear down one of our own. I mean, it's unbelievable. Because they think they're going to lose something. They're going to, exactly, there's insecurity. Yeah. That's what I mean. Insecure. I mean, they've already had such a head start, but they're still insecure. <laughs> they're just you so, know, it's just amazing. Like, if I had somebody working for me for like, you know, in my band, I had that, you know, I worked 20 years and I didn't have to pay them and I'm getting paid every, wow, that's a nice <laughs> thing. <laughs> and they had 400 years. Can I ask you, I want to, Gary, we have... Uh, still, we have it's some... still going on. It's just under other names. But go ahead. No, it's fine. Yeah, I, I mean, this is compelling. I could talk about it for hours with you. I did want to ask you something about the uh, uh, the black community. Uh, now, I, I uh, one of the first albums I had, I believe it was Libra. And uh, on the back cover... It was called, what was it called? Uh, Libra. One, it was one of your, the, your album from 67 on Milestone. My first album. Yes. Yeah. And on the back cover... There's this. It struck. It just. It stood out as clear as day. Uh, it was. A, it was a picture of Charles Tolliver, and he's looking dapper. You know, he's in a suit, and his his hair mm-hmm. is is really really groomed. He has a nice afro, and Albert Daly looks really good. Mm-hmm. And and I, and and I look at it, and I'm like, boy, style and class were style was extremely important in the music community at that time. And I look at the black community now, and 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 white and white community as well that that emulates this sort of hip hop generation with these these. Um, it, it just seems to me it, there it's just not nearly as classy. There was there was an element of sophistication at that time that is is lacking, and I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on that. Well, <laughs> I just don't see any Charles Tolliver's in those suits on these albums anymore. I see I see a lot of. I see a lot of gold bling bling and I see a lot yeah, of yeah. denigration of I see a lot of weird messages. I don't see right. love and I don't really hear music. Well, it's it, it, you know, I don't hear music a lot of times, but but a lot of the music that you don't hear is the music you should hear. Exactly. Because there are young musicians really making good music in the hip hop community in all the communities. 
But the hip-hop community is the music of today. That's contemporary. And and that's, you know, like, for instance, like, well, Billie Holiday would not go out of the, her uh, home without being dressed. She, you know, uh, Diane Carroll would, uh, had to make up everything. You know, a lot of people, that's... That's a certain generation. That's a certain mindset. Some people were different, you know. Um, some people more what they used to call bohemian, bohemian, and um, you know, uh, Miles set a style. You know, he set certain style the way he dressed, and people emulated him. Train was not a great dresser, mm-hmm. you know, but his music transcended clothes because it's not really about clothes. It's about the art of it. You know, Beethoven didn't necessarily dress good all the time. They say he would be disheveled, but he was. that didn't stop him from being a great musician. So I, I don't know. I, I don't worry about those kind of things. Let, them, let the young people dress the way they want to. It was you a, know, yeah, I were... dressed the way I wanted to. Let them dress the way they want to. I mean, it's a lot of brainwashing, and, and when you... They put these people up as examples, and people see it. You know that's, but I don't. I'm not in charge of the media. <laughs> you no, know? and that's true. I just when these these pictures come across my, uh, you know, my visual radar, um, it, there was a there was just an element. There was a real element of seriousness, and you guys were being repressed. You were that was at the height of the of the civil rights movement. I mean, there was more racial tension at that time. Than, than ever before, and maybe it's just it's been dampened down now by our media structure, but it, it wasn't like you guys were, that you held yourselves, you held your heads high, and you were playing music, and you were doing it in a dignified fashion, and I, I you know, at, at least, and I don't know if, if, if that was really mainstream music at that time in America, that's really, maybe, maybe that's... No, the, it wasn't, it was not mainstream. It, right. You know, but I mean, Ian... It's like when I used to go to see um, the Dells and James Brown and Marvin Gaye and the Impressions, they all dressed up. We're entertainers. You dress up. You don't go to do a show dressed the same way you, you walk around in the streets. This is something special. People pay to come to see you. People pay. They dressed up. <laughs> exactly. You know what I mean? People dress up. I'm going out. I'm going to see Bart's tonight, you know. I'm going to dress up, too, because they're coming to see me. What am I going to come in with jeans on and hanging out? You know, but I mean, that's what the young kids do. So the people that go see them dress like them. Well, you, you had Flash, though, my friend. I mean, there's no doubt. The the, the album mm-hmm. that I, the second album I ever owned was the one album you made on Catalyst called Juju Man. Oh, yeah. And you're wearing a shirt with with a frog on it. I mean, you were looking great. I mean, the whole <laughs> you guys were ha- it was it was just footloose and fancy free. There were, people were were not you guys weren't uptight, that's for sure. And whoever was whoever was, you know, producing those sessions just said, "These guys know what they're doing. I'm going to yeah. get out of their way and let them have fun. And I'm not going to micromanage so much." Well, but see that that's a thing. Uh, that, that goes into another subject that the record industry and why the record industry has failed. I know we need to talk about that too. And we and we and I meant it's O Y O right. Own your own record, right? And I wanted to and uh, you know Garrett, I, I wanted to just cordially uh, in uh, sometime later in the summer 
when it works for you, I'd like to have you come back because we have a whole lot of other things to talk about. Um, okay. I did. Bef- is that is that okay if you can do that? Sure. I wanted to ask you before you go. My buddy is is going to see you at the Blue Note in a couple weeks. Do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about that? You're playing with McCoy Tyner or opening for Booker T. Oh no! Is that the thing? I'm not. Sure I didn't want to put you on the spot. I, my my buddy said I'm going to see Bart's in a couple weeks. <laughs> I know I'm doing the the Highline Ballroom uh, in June with Questlove, Christian McBride. That's it. Uh, Booker T. Yeah, I think that's at the Highline. It's for the Blue Note Jazz Festival. Well, that's fantastic. Uh, actually, not even Jazz Festival for the Blue Note Festival. Yeah, let's be clear. It's all music, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And and they're celebrating. I think their thirtieth year. And a 30th anniversary, so they have a month-long series of shows every night in in different venues around New York City. And that and that. So to tell me the venue, the Highland Ballroom. The Highline. The Highline Ballroom, and it, it, for the audience's uh, sake, uh, will you be playing with all different types? Will you get up with Booker T and play with him, or is it going to be kind of a, you know a free-moving thing, or you do have your own group? We're all with? playing together. I think we're all going to play together. Yeah. Oh, that sounds. We great. might be featured. I haven't. We haven't rehearsed yet, but um, I'm pretty sure you know we'll we'll do it like that because we uh, Questlove and Christian and I have been talking about doing something anyway. Well, my friend might come to you with a Jake Feinberg show T-shirt for a signature, if that's okay. Tell him to bring me one. I will. Hey, listen, Gary. I want to tell you. <laughs> it, it, I, I am. Uh, I want to tell you what a, what an what an honor and a pleasure it was. This is a start of a conversation with you, and I look forward to doing it with you again, my friend. Have a great day. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Sunshine.